Java applications became the go-to preference of most developers because of the right ones run anywhere advantage it gave over other languages. And it didn't take much time for Java to become the language for the enterprise. Consequently, most enterprises are still running legacy Java monoliths on their infrastructure. Breaking up a monolith is not an easy process, nor is it something that every company should do just because they have a monolith. In some cases, a monolith is just fine, but sometimes you do need to decompose a monolith as the complexity of the monolith grows and leads to longer release cycles or scalability issues. Breaking down into microservices is a natural way to shift legacy applications to the cloud. WeFunction is an artificial intelligence platform that assesses, analyzes, helps you design microservices, and then automatically creates those microservices for you. So it's an end-to-end -end platform from analysis to the actual creation of the code of those microservices with their respective APIs. While WeFunction started with Java, they are expanding these capabilities to other platforms as well. Moti Rapalin, who is the CEO of WeFunction, and Amir Rapson, who is the CTO of WeFunction, join us today. Amir and Moti, welcome to the show. Welcome, Sean. Thanks, Sean, for having us. Awesome. So you are both the founders of vFunction, uh, a cloud application modernization platform. So before we dive too deep into you know, legacy systems and modernization, can you please both introduce yourself? Who are you? What's your background? How did you end up where you are today? Amir, maybe you can go first. Sure. Um, so my name is Amir. Um, I'm the CTO and founder of vFunction. Um, my entire professional history has been startups um so over 20 years in startups uh, i'm a physicist originally um and um up until v function we kind of created a lot of technical debt that uh, we're now happy to uh, uh try to tackle with v function so we see that as sort of an arse poeticism of uh being a startup um, person and I'm Motor Falin, founder and CEO. Um, I've been for over 20 years in the enterprise software market. Did both the large company for six, seven years at EMC back in the day. And then uh, I did three startups. Uh, one that I did with Amir, which we sold to Blackberry, that was Watchdogs. Then another small startup that I just did this short period of time as an interim CEO. And then together we founded vFunction. And I think that what's interesting and maybe unique about vFunction is that we just decided to focus on the biggest problem that we can think of when it comes to cloud adoption. And that was almost five years ago. And it's unique in the sense that it was very clear that there's a very large market for this but it wasn't clear that there's a technology that can solve it. And that's what we decided to focus on. And, and that's been the journey, which we'll be happy to share with you later. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I definitely want to get into, uh, you know, the your perspective on the size and scale of this, you know, this problem, the, the idea of uh, sort of, you know, application modernization. And Amir, 20 years in startups, I mean, I think like, 
startup years are like dog years. So that's a long, <laughs> that's a long time to be in, to be in startups solely. So, uh, you know, um, you both have, uh, amazing depth of experience in, you know, creating companies and, and, uh, and also working in the world of startups. So, you know, I think if you're in tech, and I think this is especially true, you know, in the Bay Area where I live and probably other, I'm sure, pockets of the world. But it's kind of easy to forget that not everyone is running on the cloud using modern stack deployed with, you know, containerization and microservices and service functions and real-time event systems and all these other sort of modern cloud-based technologies. The cloud is still very much in its infancy. So for companies with legacy systems, What's some of the big challenges for a company when it comes to actually the modernization of an application? So, well, first of all, I think the majority of the apps are obviously not cloud native. I think I saw a number about over 80% of apps are not cloud native. So this is a, a major, major uh, problem. Uh, the, the challenges are, you know, the, these applications... First, let's talk about the problem for a second here, right? So you've got long test cycles and long release cycles and your ability to release features, you know, is really impacted and your ability to ramp up developers. You know, when you get a new developer and you have these 16 million lines of code app, you know, how much time would it take for that developer to be productive as opposed to a microservices architecture where they can ramp up on a specific service, right, almost immediately, right? So really your ability to innovate and, and be competitive is hampered. Now, the challenge of how to modernize is that there are no good tools. The complexity, right, the technical debt, the fact that the original developers are usually not around anymore. Um, so just understanding the, co the complexity and kind of what's happening within that application these are very, very risky projects, uh, very costly. I think a stat from a recent survey that was commissioned is that over 70% of modernization projects fail. Uh, they cost on average $1.5 million per app and they last more than 16 months on average and 30% even take more than 24 months. So you're basically, it's, it's a very complicated problem and you're you're sort of caught between the rock and the hard place because damn if you do, damned if you don't, right? If you don't modernize, you have all those issues that I described, right? In terms of your ability to be competitive. And then if you do modernize, then you run the risk of the project not you know, successfully getting to completion. You got anything to add, Amir? Um... I'll just say that, that that realization that our life is actually not in the cloud and the cloud is in the infancy, also for us in the beginning of this journey was kind of a surprise because you do talk about the cloud and like 100% of the companies in the world are on the cloud. But when you look at like what's really on the cloud, you see that 80% of the workloads are not in the cloud, which means that our life is still pretty much on-premise in data centers. So if you think about financial services, if you think about insurance companies, if you think about um making a flight reservation so really everything is not not necessarily everything is in the cloud and and when you think about like aws is like the the biggest cloud and micro and azure are the second largest uh it's still an open race because they're still like they're the first uh, they're the biggest one with 20 percent of the workloads but they're still 80 percent of the workloads up for grabs so it's still very much a, a massive uh, opportunity and it's a massive market still about to happen. I, I think I have a view and 
don't know if you have any comment on that, John, that we're basically now in the third wave of cloud adoption. Let me explain what I see as the waves. I think the first wave was just the lift and shift, right? basically the beginning of the cloud just moved from CapEx to OpEx, right? EC2, S3, just move the compute, uh, the storage to the cloud and you know pay for what you need and you know you can scale by quote unquote renting more right capacity. That was the first wave. The second wave was sort of the cloud native, you know, all the modern services that the cloud has to offer, with containerization and serverless and Kubernetes, all those great things. But for that you need to build modern applications, right? So these are the new applications, the new wave basically that you build for the cloud. That was the second wave. And I think that we sort of are maturing with those two initial waves and we're getting to the third wave where you actually have the bulk of the global 2000 organizations that still have the legacy that you can't lift and shift because you won't get much value from it. And you can't just simply rewrite from scratch as cloud native. So you need to modernize. And I think now we're at the age of modernization where you actually need to go and find ways to extract value from the cloud by modernizing these applications. So I don't know, that's kind of my view of where we are in terms of cloud adoption. Yeah, and I think the point that you made about how, you know, 80% essentially of businesses are are still running like outside of the cloud, essentially on with some sort of M-Brem system is a good thing to keep in mind, especially, you know, given I think the current macroeconomics of the world, like there's tremendous amount of growth in the industry yet to be hold, even though we might be kind of entering in a, a somewhat of a downturn when it comes to you know valuations and maybe potential recession, but the growth is still there. You know, people still essentially need to are, are still going to make this move eventually to the cloud. Like you talked about airlines, for example, like that's a you know big industry that is probably running on a fairly legacy uh, infrastructure today. And you know. Moti, you talked about this idea that in the first wave of the cloud, it was this sort of lift and shift model of essentially just taking what we were doing from a monolithic standpoint on-prem and moving that to the cloud. So what is sort of the downside of, of you know, taking that approach? It's not really sort of modernizing. It's essentially just you know, taking advantage of, uh, I guess, you know, horizontal scaling that you get through, through cloud systems. So... I think that these monolithic applications, if you just lift and shift them, some are going to be okay, right? And and I don't, and, uh, we don't necessarily advocate that you need to modernize every application, right? Some might be a good fit for that, but they're really kind of complex, I call them nasty applications. If you lift and shift them, in fact, you're running into several issues. One, they actually don't scale out, right? So if you have a very large monolith, that you know, startup time is 30 minutes or one hour, and, and there are those applications, then you don't really have elasticity. You have to have those instances there sitting and running, right, and, and being available. And so, in fact, that will cost you even more, right? So when you, and, and many times organizations, when they rush to the cloud, they just want to move from CapEx to OpEx, or they're being sold on this vision that the cloud will help them you know, save money, the, only to realize after a year and getting you know, the sticker shock of a very large bill from the cloud provider because that those these applications are not fit to scale out right so they actually cost you more even if you take it on a one monolith not even multiple instances you'll need very large machines uh, and again these are very costly in the cloud so I think that's one drawback 
Another is that you're, you're not getting the kind of the modern kind of agile, you know, accelerated development by just simply putting it in, even in a container in the cloud, take a monolith, you put it in a container, you've done very little to accelerate the engineering velocity. Yeah, maybe you've got some benefits in terms of portability and some of those aspects, but you're not really accelerating the engineering velocity. And so that, that is the disappointment when you're just lifting and shifting. And I think customers are becoming more and more savvy about this. And they realize that they need to be very methodical and thoughtful about which applications really just to lift and shift versus those that they need to modernize. Right. So, you know, as you mentioned, there's situations where lift and shift might make sense, but for a lot of cases, essentially taking that approach, you're essentially not really taking advantage of what the cloud would give you in terms of, you know, speed of execution, rate of learning, you know, uh, speed of essentially development cycles, as well as cost savings. So, for companies, I think you mentioned earlier that, you know, a lot of companies or maybe the majority of companies that try to make this move, but those projects fail. So what is the sort of typical approach that a company takes to actually tackling this problem of, hey, we have a legacy system, we want to move the cloud, and we also want to modernize? So, okay. so um, I, look, we, there, are, there are multiple strategies. Um, because of this high rate of failure, uh, and this uh, perceived risk, uh, we see organizations start, are still hesitating about what is the right strategy for them. What we've seen as a very successful strategy is the move and improve strategy to the cloud, to move it to the cloud, um, but not stay there. I mean, if you just stay with the lift and shift, uh, you're not, as Moti said, you're not gaining enough value from the cloud. And if you're not gaining enough value, then you're only looking at the cost. Uh, so you, but moving it to the cloud first is a good strategy. It creates the right factory model. It creates a pipeline for these applications. And then starting to assess these applications, trying to calculate the level of technical debt in these applications, and then trying to understand which applications you need to tackle those techni the technical debt first, which will give you that uh, business impact, that value from the cloud, and then tackle those applications one by one. Um, and to do this in a very methodical way, like to calculate, to really try to calculate the technical debt, to really try to analyze the applications, what uh, value you can gain from modernizing them, and not necessarily um, to have a one strategy fits all. Yeah, and I imagine for these companies that are trying to make this change, you know, there's probably very few people, if anybody within the company that really understand how all the pieces go together at a, like a, you know, large enterprise company that's been in, maybe in operation for over 20 years running with, uh, you know, continually sort of expanding this monolithic infrastructure that might be millions of lines of code. So I imagine that whole process of kind of trying to break it apart is probably a pretty daunting task, which is not, you know, maybe surprising that a lot of these projects end up failing. Yeah, I think uh, just uh, maybe add more detail in terms of how it's done today. Usually, you know, the client will bring maybe a system integrator or some consultancy that, you know, has a little more experience, let's say with the FIG kind of strangler approach for modernization. They'll sit for a few weeks, sometimes even a few months, just you know, doing event storming and trying to figure out 
you know, what are the boundaries of the potential services, and then basically try to, you know, carve one service at a time. Um, but again, and, and use any available tool that's out there, be it static analysis tools or using using APMs. Again, none of these tools were was developed specifically for modernization. So that, that is also one of the gaps that exists within the, the modernization world. Yeah, so th that's exactly the gap that we found when we started the company, that it is a big problem. You need to use... Uh, all the information that you have at your disposal, but there are no real tools to give you the right feedback um, to do that. So th th that's really what we set out to do, is to treat modernization in a data-first um, uh, data approach, like to analyze applications, to calculate technical debt, to provide feedback to architects, what the best architecture for that application is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think that's a good sort of segue to start to talk a little bit about V function. So V function helps transform a monolithic Java application into microservices. And I first saw a demo of V function about a year ago, and I'm sure a ton has changed since then. You know, a year in the startup world is is a long time. But I was really impressed by what you had built even a year ago. So, but for the sake of those who haven't experienced the product, can you kind of walk me through how V function goes about? breaking up a monolithic Java application. Sure. So V function starts by analyzing the application. So we start by doing dynamic analysis and analyzing an application as it runs. Um, it tracks um, dependencies between methods, like which methods call other methods or classes which call other classes, but also which objects are accessed um, during well, when the application is running, the, that object is or entity can be like a access to a database table. And then um, you can think about this like a huge matrix of dependencies, like which classes need other classes or which classes need which database tables. And then we input that into um, our algorithms. Um, and through data science and AI, we optimize what is the best architecture with the least amount of constraints and the highest degree of domain exclusivity in those uh, in that architecture. So, so services need to be more cohesive uh, when you look at the domain, but also when you need to minimize the constraints. Um, and, and that's the starting point we provide architects. From that point on, uh, one thing we understood pretty, pretty quickly is that um, Architects and developers need to be a part of this journey, and they need to make conscious decisions. If you solve this optimization problem, as op op like if, even if you find like the optimal architecture, it's still only based on how the code is currently written, which may not be so good. Uh, so an architect has to provide his opinion, and a developer needs to own this modernization project. So the platform itself is not only provides you with the initial this initial architecture, but one of the key aspects of it is that it provides you constant feedback with every architecture that you want to get to, what it means to get to that architecture and which um, dependencies you have to deal with, uh, which domains you're breaking up or which domains it makes sense to glue together, even if they're not entirely related. And it provides different organizations with different architecture, also based on their skill set and, uh, and their cloud readiness. Um, and, and that's basically it, a data-centric approach using a lot of data science and AI 
to really solve this huge optimization problem of how to split up an application. So you mentioned dynamic analysis. So I'm assuming is a client essentially installing something to run, you know, on their JVM or servers to perform this dynamic analysis of essentially production code? Yes. Yes. Uh, you can put it on a pre-production code on a, or on a production code. If you put mm -hmm. it on a production code, it's actually quite powerful because if you take this dynamic analysis and superimpose on that a static analysis, so not only what's running, but what's in that application, and you subtract one from the other, what you get is a ton of dead code. And this dead code is not only dead code like classes that are never used, like completely obsolete code, but it's actually flows in the code that you actually are still maintaining, but they're never running, or dependencies that are there, but in this, that context of a specific domain never run. So it's it's actually when you just if you put it on a on production system and just strip away the dead code just by that you can eliminate like thirty percent of your application. How do you know when someone is when you essentially have enough coverage from the dynamic analysis? Like because potentially you know maybe there's uh, you know some part of the application that only runs like once a month. So then something that looks like dead code is not actually dead code because you just you know weren't running that dynamic analysis long enough. Um, so you, you can do this on a production for, let's say, a week, and then mm -hmm. augment that with a pre-production testing uh, of those operations that happen once a month, once a quarter. And, uh, and it depends on the application. If we're talking about like a tax application, you definitely need to... Uh, I look at it at certain times of the month. Um, but, um, you know, one thing is, is guaranteed is that you'll uh, forget about more flows if you do this uh, manually than if you do this using dynamic analysis. Yeah, for sure. But, but to answer your question, I think the fact that V function sort of uh, compares the static and dynamic analysis, it allows us to basically surface those flows that weren't seen in the dynamic analysis. And then it allows the architect to actually have an informed decision whether this is just dead code or these are flows that actually are relevant and need to be surfaced because this is functionality that they, that they do care about, right? So, so the platform definitely flags that and, and allows the, the user to make that decision. Mm -hmm. So I imagine in my mind, essentially what's happening is you're doing this dynamic analysis and it sounds like it's also augmented with static analysis. So you're building up essentially like this graph representation of the depend like a dependency graph between the different areas of the source code. And then you're applying some combination of you know graph analysis, AI machine learning on top of that to essentially figure out where are the logical places that you can break up these uh, you know, essentially clusters of similar code. And then there's a semi-automated tool that an architect walks through to see, oh, this does make sense or this doesn't make sense using their own domain knowledge and domain expertise. Is that kind of the overall, you know, very simplifies 10,000 foot view of what's going on? Yes, it's an accurate, uh, um, it, it's an accurate view of what we're doing in a high level, yes. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of, the AI and machine learning are such, are you using some sort of like clustering uh, technique to essentially figure out the you know what areas of the dependency graph have like the highest sort of compactness or something like that? 
Yes. Um, there's actually a lot, uh, many different types of algorithms that go into it. There's clustering of the static dependencies into communities in order to figure out the level of technical debt. Uh, there's some proprietary uh, algorithms. There's graph neural networks that, you, that are in use to find which classes and methods should go in a library and, and are just based on their topology are kind of more common, more should be in a common library rather than domain specific. So there is many different algorithms. Some of them are definitely clustering algorithms. Some of them are more computational data science algorithms and some of them are really straight on graph neural networks. Mm -hmm. And what is the typical amount of time that someone is running this uh, to perform the dynamic analysis? Like usually how long does it take? You know, I'm sure there's uh, of course lots of variance here, but what is sort of the average expectation someone might be running this to get a good understanding or good coverage of their actual, uh, you know, dependencies? So we, we say that about a, between a week and two is the right rule of thumb for uh, an application. Um, but you know what, sometimes it takes just a mere hour to get enough information to start working. And, uh, and even in that mere hour of working with a production application, data from a production application, it allows architects to start to understand their, their architecture and start to gain some insight in, into what the direction is. So then you can have like, you know, look at it for an hour, come up with some uh, architecture and then decide based on that, let's put it for another week, let's put it for another two weeks and then uh, see if uh, data gets added and if the architecture evolves. Uh, when it stops evolving, that's a good time to stop. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then what's the like output of the data collection process? Can you talk a little bit about your you know, UI and what I'd be seeing and interacting with as the architect? Sure. Um, so what you see immediately is your architecture. So which services can be extracted and which services need to call other services. So the first thing you encounter are um, the number of services, their size, um, the calls between the services, and also we depict the metrics um, that we calculate for each service. So the metrics, you can think about them, how good the service is. Like, for instance, we have a, met um, a metric um, of exclusivity, like the percentage of classes that are exclusive to a service or the percentage of constraints that are exclusive to a service. So for instance, database transactions or database tables or synchronization objects. Um, but you can also view those metrics as really the level of effort that will take you to extract a certain service. So the fact that metrics are kind of bad doesn't mean that the service is bad. It just means that it's a little bit more work to extract it. And uh, with many applications that are actually very complex, sometimes the metrics are not so good. So it's still like a good architecture. Um, and I would say that um, uh, let me let me uh, take a step back for a second. When, archi when, when architects d define an, an architecture, they tell the developer, let's build it in a certain way. And then developers will go into the code and try to figure it out and tell developers, you know what, we can't do it. It's too complex. It's exactly in those places where if you run um, 
analysis and the analysis may show you services with bad metrics or with high complexity but it's still but but still just the, the um, uh, assurance that that is the best architecture even if it's going to be hard and even if refactoring is going to be required then uh, that is super powerful i mean just to see those um, red dots uh, that show you bad metrics that's actually where um, you can be sure that the platform will provide you more value than if it's, than if it's a well-built, simple application that you can just simply break apart. Uh, let me just add, in terms of the visualization, what exactly you see. So basically, each service is represented by a bubble. The size of the bubble represents the size of the service. The color represents the exclusivity that Amir mentioned. And then you see the interdependencies between the bubbles, right? What are the, the constraints or the shared resources? And then the platform allows you... And by the way, the service is defined by its entry points, right? And, and also the naming of the services stems from the methods that are the entry points to that service. And there are some heuristics in terms of how the system tries to capture the description of the service based on the names of the different methods that are sort of um, visible in that specific service. And then you can dive deeper into each bubble and, and actually go and browse their specific uh, call tree. So it kind of really allows you to take both a high-level view, but then also dive in and actually see the, the specific uh, call tree. So hopefully this is a... Only a, obviously a podcast, so it's hard to show any screenshots. But hopefully, I was able to make it a little bit more um, kind of visual. Yeah, but look, the visualization of so many, so much information is is a big deal, and and we see our visualization as part of our IP. It's definitely something that we spend a lot of time and thought on um, to make it super usable and very easy to start from a. Um, high-level view of the architecture and very quickly go down to exactly which methods call which other methods where classes are in use in other services and what's the complexity of this whole thing yeah for sure i mean i i you know spent some time in my uh you know previous academic life working in the information visualization space so i know how big a challenge it is to you know utilize tools and techniques like information visualization to large scale problems. Uh, but if you do it right, of course, you you can create something that's like really powerful for users that allow them to use something, um, you know, in your case, take a really complicated problem and actually distill it down into something that you can actually understand and start to digest and actually uh, make headway on, uh, on hopefully, you know, addressing that problem in this case for your business. So you mentioned these you know, interdependencies between these these different services or these recommended services. So essentially, do those interdependencies end up representing what will eventually become an API call between two different uh, microservices? Yes, or um, stuff that you will need to refactor uh, after extracting the services. Uh, we're not saying that just extracting the services will modernize an application. But what we are saying is that it's always easier to modernize individual pieces of, um, of an application rather than to take a whole big ball of mud and try to understand the whole thing. It's much easier to test a smaller piece of the application that you, you understand its inputs and its outputs. Um, you can uh, um, slowly migrate between the original code and the new code. So, so sometimes these constraints just mean that you need to, you'll need to do a little bit more changes. Um, 
but but the platform itself allows you to deal with some of these dependencies, right? That that's something that is uh, very powerful about the platform that it allows you to, for example, change the boundaries of the service. So it actually allows you to get rid of some of these dependencies depending where you put the boundary of the service, right? So the platform allows you to make those changes and see immediately the impact of those decisions. So you can add calls between services, you can merge services, you can split services, you can decide, you know, maybe certain, you know, methods or, or things need to go into the common library. So there, there are all kinds of actions that, that the platform allows you to interact with and change those dependencies before actually moving to extraction. So I think that, that also helps. Yeah, so you know, Java runtimes can have a lot of uh, package dependencies, you know, sometimes from third parties and so on. But so, how do you figure out what dependencies to bring over to each of these different microservices? Um, this, this is something we sometimes ask for information from the user: what are the Java packages that are really in use? Because uh, it's it's hard to know because. Um, um, for a certain bank, it can have like a, a com bank common package that's within the control of a completely different team. So it's kind of hard to figure out uh, without uh, input from a user. Uh, we do try our best to make sure that you cover everything. So when you give us a binary, we make sure that all of the classes are covered by the analysis. Um, uh, but the user should, but the user does have some interaction there to kind of allow the application to focus on the right bits to analyze, because otherwise you might focus on the wrong thing. And then, who's the typical user, and sort of what knowledge do they need to operate this application? Is it usually the architect, or is there other you know potential users of this as well? Definitely the architect. Um, the architect should have. Um, some knowledge about what the application is supposed to do, not necessarily how the application is working. And uh, it should have in mind also uh, what is the organization's cloud readiness. So for instance, are they ready to have like a full mesh application running or if they need to figure out like maybe slightly larger services because that's what they know how to operate at the moment. So with those two things, we can work on an application. Do people ever, you know, start with maybe, uh, like as you mentioned, like breaking things up into sort of larger components because that's kind of what they're ready for, and then they, you know, maybe a year later they come back and essentially do a, run another analysis and maybe break up each of those into smaller components and sort of do this through an iterative cycle. Sure. Um, okay. Even more than that, sometimes, you know, before when when you start with a big monolith, sometimes the first right step is to get to a modular monolith. So to just make sense of your packages and internal dependencies and create libraries before splitting up into services. So sometimes our platform is used only to refactor the monolith and then maybe later extract bigger, bigger pieces from it. And lastly, take those pieces, the, those relatively big pieces and, and split them up into smaller pieces. But definitely microservices is also it's not only a code thing, right? You also have to have, it's also about the, the ownership of a certain team that, that owns a certain deliverable. So it also has to mimic the organizational structure, etc. So sometimes it does make sense to use microservices and sometimes mini services and 
and less often than uh, than what you expect microservices. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that's a really good point that you made about the organizational structure. Also, like if you're going to switch to this model, it needs to be ready for modernization as well in terms of you know how your teams are are built. Uh, you might not be set up in a, a squad model that can own all these sort of independent units. It might be something that you know takes takes time to essentially uh, switch over. Or, you know, maybe they decide that that doesn't make sense. It's good that you sort of, um, you know, a company essentially doesn't need to boil the ocean with this product. They can, you know, take baby steps to, you know, taking incremental steps to moving from something that's, you know, purely on-prem legacy system and, you know, starting simple, break it up a little bit, get in on the cloud, and then they can kind of, you know, continue to modernize from there. So once someone has actually figured out using the vFunction tool, how they want to break up the application. How does deployment work? Like, how do I, you know, go about sort of integrating the end result maybe with a CI CD system? So, uh, when the, the V function platform uh, deals with the analysis, but after the analysis, when you're happy with the architecture, it also will help you with the initial extraction of the services. Uh, we see that um, often when developers are tasked with breaking an application apart into services, they focus on the menial tasks, you know, take, making, it, making it compile, moving a source by source and trying to understand the dependency structure, trying to create that POM file so you can actually compile it. So for that, that is something that we try to automate almost completely to, to, to allow you to get to a compilable service with the right POM file or with the right Gradle script, so you can deploy it on a CACD and start working from there. Uh, copy test files that relate to the classes that you just extracted, so you don't have to do that uh, manually. Um, but, um, but as I said, that's only the beginning of the modernization journey. From that point on, you have something running on a CACD, you have your tests, you have your smaller um, service, from now on, you need to to still refactor the application and reduce the level of technical debt within that smaller service. Um, so we do take it apart. We do uh, we do break it apart. We do create the, those uh, scripts that you can put on your CACD. We even allow you to continuously make sure that as the application is running, that you that the architecture is not get doesn't get messed up over time. I mean, when you do the refactoring, that your level of technical debt within the service is not too high, that your level of, uh, um, that the dependencies are not getting, that you're not creating circular dependencies in your code, etc. Um, but uh, the rest is really up to the developers. There's still a lot for the developers to do. Right. Yeah. There's, you know, modernization doesn't start here. It really begins with this, but this is a big problem and that you need to solve before you can get to the place where essentially now you're starting to incorporate other types of sort of modern uh, technologies like, you know, observability tools, governance, you know, various security tools and so on. Right. Exactly. So all of those uh, non-functional requirements that you need to bolt on, um, you can really do that with the, the once you have the services and once you unbuckled it from the monolith. Yeah. So how does this compare in terms of time and resource investment to say doing this yourself from from the beginning? One thing to remember is that the regardless of cost and time, which is of course uh, there's a lot of acceleration and reduction in risk. 
in, in time, sorry, but the, the one thing that's important here is the reduction in risk. What we see um, is that modernization projects fail about 80% of the time. And what we saw with V function thus far is that we have success 90% of the time. So when you think about like the difference between embarking on a project that's going to cost you quite a lot and with a high percentage it'll fail versus it'll still cost you, but now it'll be successful, then, then the reduction in price and cost and reduction in time is not as important. But nevertheless, we also see a, a significant reduction in time. Like if you think about a project where just those back and forth between architect and developers, what's a good architecture, what's a bad architecture, that can take like a year within an 18 months project. So even if you take that down, you're reducing the project from 18 months to six months. And even those six months, we kind of try to reduce them to about three months. So you take from a year and a half to three months, it's a massive difference. And it's not just a massive difference in time. It's a massive difference in terms of the priorities of the organization. Think about a project that might take two years. Two years is, let's say, developers leave within two years. Management changes in two years. The uh, priorities change. Just taking it down from two years to six months is an enormous um, um, from, a, from an organization perspective. And ju just to clarify about the acceleration, right? So the portion of V function it gets accelerated about 20 times faster, right? But there's obviously some manual, you know, refactoring that is needed. For example, you, you need to sometimes build a new UI. You need to maybe decompose the database. These are things that V function provides you visibility into, but these are things that you have to do manually. So that's why when you take, when you roll all that up, then you get about one to four acceleration, right? All up. If you just think about the decomposition of the business logic, you get, you know, you know orders of magnitude acceleration. And of course, also in terms of resources, you know, we've seen you, you, you can achieve the same with the, acceler at the accelerated pace with, you know, one third of the resources. Yeah, and the knowledge gap. Uh, you, it's very hard to find people with successful experience in modernizing applications. Uh, and with a platform to guide them to make the right decisions, obviously that too is something that um, uh, organizations are looking for. Yeah, I mean, in that timeline that you were talking about, something that's like 18 to 24 months, that's a that's a big project for someone to to, you know, for a lot of companies to essentially commit to. Um, you know, it's a long-term project versus if you can condense that down to like a quarter or two, that's a much more sort of digestible unit of work to measure success around. And then you get all the, you know, potential benefits and accelerations after that of, um, you know, modernizing your infrastructure, maybe mo modernizing the way you're deploying code and the technologies that you're using. So can anyone play with the V function product if they want to experiment with it and get a feel for it? So absolutely. First, we have two two products. We didn't really go into this, right? We have a, a very basic assessment tool that uh, uses our machine learning and that just does the scanning of the bytecode and uses all the information that we've gathered in the past to provide you a report about the technical debt, the level of investment that you're putting into this application uh, that goes towards innovation versus maintenance and so forth. That is something that's available you know, for free on our website. You can go in, sign up, download this tool. It will scan your code. You can upload that and generate the report. So that's free. 
Uh, and specifically, if you want to try v function, we usually, you know, we, we usually like to work with prospects, and you know, POC is something that is absolutely uh, available for for people if they want to try. Uh, if there's a specific you know, developer that wants to go and, and modernize an application, we'll be happy to give them access, go to our website, uh, you know, you fill up the form and we'll give you access. What we found out, though, is that, you know, these projects are usually, while we all, uh, we love developers and they're the ones that are using the platform, usually a developer can decide to go uh, on its own, on his own or her own, and modernize, let's say, you know, a very large, you know, a multi-billion dollar impact application. Right? Usually comes from the top, and so the, the engagement is sort of more of traditional enterprise kind of uh, sales engagement. Having said that, we're always happy to give access to developers if they want to try it out on the application, but keep in mind that also you won't see the value if you're taking a 50-class application, right? Let's say you, you download a, a demo application, you know, some open-source demo application, you want to try v-function on it. You could, but, but you won't see the value, right? The value correlates to the complexity of the application. So if you really want to get the value of v-function, you need a real kind of application that is up for modernization. So all of this kind of leads to a more traditional model of enterprise sales. But again, we'll be happy to give access to people who are interested in. Yeah, absolutely. You need, you know, from the sounds of it, you need it. The, the sort of the bigger, the scarier the system, then the more value that someone's going to uh, drive from it. So the development of V function seems like it requires probably a lot of sort of specialized engineering. You know, dynamic and static analysis, graph theory, AI, machine learning, information visualization. These are just some of the things that we've you know touched on during this conversation. Can you talk a little bit? about the backgrounds of the engineering team that built this product and kind of how things are organized from an engineering and product perspective? Sure. Um, so uh, I will say that all developers are special. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but we have uh, um, people from uh, different backgrounds, um, some uh, mathematicians, some um, ex-physicists, um, and, and many ex-developers and engineers with a lot of experience uh, building bad software. Um, I think, uh, you know, one thing that... that you, people. Yeah, and, and low-level people that really are interested in how things are working rather than, like, you know, how to add a new feature, but really how the JVM works and um, to, uh, to be able to debug every level. But I think that... One thing you learn with uh, experience is that there's a huge gap between what architects are supposed to do and what the level of visibility that they currently have from building applications. So developers kind of plan what you need to do, but have very little visibility afterwards on how exactly their their stuff is built. Um, we look, and and then that gap, I think that that's partly what creates technical debt, right? That over time, architects kind of lose control and uh, on on how the application is actually built. And I think that um, we're looking for when we have those experienced developers that know this problem, that understand this knowledge gap, that understand what is a good architecture versus understand what it is in the code that makes it so messy. That helps a lot to kind of 
think about the right algorithms, solve the right problems. And then when you get to like a, uh, a more classic uh, machine learning problem, then uh, there's also the classic mathematicians that can help um, solve that problem, but with that engineering know-how to define the problem. Hope that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then, you know, what's next for, for V-Function? So I think that what I just mentioned, like the, to solve that gap between what architects are supposed to do versus what are the tools and visibility that uh, is provided to them. Um, and I think that what we really got to at the moment is, is a, a, um, a nice tool, um, tool set for developers uh, to use a data-driven approach to make conscious decisions. So it's not only about modernizing an application, but it's really about um, maintaining the technical debt, maintaining a good architecture, making sure that uh, your engineering posture is good. So um, I think that that's uh, where we're headed at the moment. So constantly improving our modernization algorithms and 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 uh, our, from increasing our learning set and our training sets, uh, but also uh, using those algorithms for different use cases, like maintaining the architecture rather than breaking it apart. I, I would characterize it as like, where is V-Function headed? We're basically expanding in three dimensions, horizontally, vertically, and over time. I'll explain what I mean by that, right? So horizontally, we want more languages, and we also support today .NET, so Java and .NET. Um, vertically, we sort of expand, look more into the database and the UI, and we automate more aspects there. And uh, the time dimension is that we want, and that ties to what Amir said, which is we want to you know, make sure that over time, even applications that have been modernized don't sort of go off rails. And so if you can, on an ongoing basis, would kind of monitor them and, and alert when the architecture, the complexity, dead code, kind of all the things that are basically implementing the continuous modernization concept that we didn't invent. I think Gardner started talking about this a couple of years ago, but that's kind of also where we're headed. Yeah, essentially, you know, like a, like an observability function for the uh, ongoing modernization of the application. So, I mean, the good thing is that there's uh, there's probably there's no shortage of work. <laughs> what, what was that? Sorry, Amir. A shift left for architects is really what we coin it. Right. Yeah, that's a great. Uh, I think that's a great uh, way of uh, explaining it. It's uh, and as I was saying, there's you know no shortage of work in terms of trying to modernize these applications. You're not going to run out of things to, and, and problems to solve. So, Amir and uh, Moti, I, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. You know, I joined this. I enjoyed the conversation a lot. I'm sure the audience will as well. It's uh, great to see sort of how much work has been done over the past year, and I wish you know, both of you all the best and success, and hopefully we'll actually be able to catch up in person at the upcoming AWS reInvent. Absolutely. Thank you, John, uh, Sean, for having us. Thank you, Sean. Yeah. Cheers.